Um, we're going to start off by reading Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 13 on page 215 in the Church Bibles. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will, be, I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Now we're going to read Joshua 4 verses 1 to 7. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. You'll see there's um, not an outline actually in the booklet, plenty of space. I'll reveal one as we go, although our clicker seems to have disappeared into thin air somewhere. If anybody knows where that is, that'd be good. Um, but Sue's going to, I'm going to signal to Sue and she'll take us through um, as we go, um, as the um, outline is revealed. We come today really to one of the greatest events in human history. But because many of us sort of have read this story and know the story so well, it's easy for us to miss the amazing nature of this story and to lose its impact because it is quite utterly amazing. And in fact, that's the way Joshua himself describes it um, in chapter 3 early on. 
if you remember there in chapter 3, verse 5, Joshua says, tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Literally, the word is wonders. The Lord will do wonders among you. And what we have here, friends, is one of the great examples of what I call the God of wonders. So I've altered the title just a little bit in your booklet. If you had it there, you would see the title was The Promise Keeping God. I've altered that to The God of Wonders Keeping His Promise. Now let's for a moment just recap where we've come in the story. And I want to illustrate this via a map. Now, because I haven't got a pointer, um, but you'll see here that um, that red line sort of marks where Israel's come from the Exodus and um, up around where it says Edom and the wilderness of sin there, you know, wandering around there for 40 years. Um, nobody really, if you look at different books, you'll find that they all have different trips because nobody knows for sure exactly the trip. But what's happened is that they've come up to the east side of the Jordan and you'll see where the red line ends. You see Abel Shittim. Right? 3 verse 1 tells us that is where they are. So they've come up to there. Rahab, the incident of Rahab's happened. The spies have gone through, had a look and found out now, yes, the Lord seems to be ready to give us the land and that is where uh, they are. And, um, and so that's where we've come to. So what we have here is a whole new generation of people camped at Shittim. Remember, if you remember that in terms of the wilderness... Um, everybody 20 and above would die in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb and probably their families um, as well. So now, 40 years later, we've got a whole group of people, 20 and above, or you know, a whole group of adults, who um, are now ready to cross the Jordan River. And these two chapters split in nicely into two segments. Chapter 3 records the actual crossing of the Jordan, uh, by the whole nation, and then chapter 4 records a memorial of stones set up by Joshua as a testimony to what God did in that place. We're going to look at each in turn. So first of all, the crossing of uh, the River Jordan. Now just imagine what this scene must have looked like if you were one of the people there. Um, they know that God has promised them the land. I'm sure at this time, seeing the Jordan River, um, uh, there must have been murmurs how in the world is this going to work? Um, you know, you've got people, but you've got um, animals, you've got all sorts of goods and da-da-da to take it. How are we going to get across the river? You just see this in their minds. Well, God instructs Joshua to tell the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant some distance ahead, about 900 metres, and then to go to the water's edge and stand in the river. As soon as the priests do that, the very moment... They step foot in the water. We're told that the river stops flowing. And, they say, and the author says, oh, by the way, the, uh, the Jordan was in flood. Just to sort of add a bit of um, whatever to the story. The water was in flood. There was no creek or gentle stream Israelites sought to cross. No ferry no hydrofoil to get across on. At this time of year, it was really something like a raging torrent. Now here's a picture I just picked off the internet, latched onto it, 
don't know how I got there, but anyway. Um, this is a modern picture of uh, the Jordan River in flood in spring. I don't know what part of it, didn't really care. Um, but you can see, um, it really is more like a torrent at this time, um, flowing down, which would make the idea that you put a foot in there and all of a sudden the water stops flowing even more incredible. Verse 16 says the water's piled up in a heap. Well, anybody ever seen water's piled up in a heap? No, I don't know what that means or that sort of thing. Uh, it would have been interesting to see what that means. But of course, um, we're told here that uh, they were piled up upstream some distance away in a town uh, called Adam. And then we read in verse 17, the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry land, dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Wow. Really, if you think about it, it takes your breath away. A wonder indeed. Now, two things, however, dominate this event, this chapter, as you read through it. The first is the Ark of the Covenant. And it begs the question, what is the role of the Ark of the Covenant? You see, the appearance of the Ark just comes out of the blue, out of nowhere. Haven't seen it before or anything. All of a sudden it's there um, and it just appears. And it is the means, of course, by which the Israelites cross the Jordan. It's mentioned no less than ten times in these two chapters, in chapters three and four. And here's sort of one person's, let's say, picture of what it might have looked like. It was all overlaid with gold. It had poles either side so the priests could carry it. The two things on the top are what people imagine cherubim look like um, that way. And they were part of the cover of the ark. And... Um, and it had the Ten Commandments at this stage in it. Now, of course, we've all been a bit spoiled or led astray by Harrison Ford and, uh, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark because uh, you get the impression that the Ark was some sort of magical thing that had power stored in it magically and that sort of thing. And that's not true. That's not the way the Bible sees it uh, at all. Moses was originally instructed to make the Ark in Exodus 25 and it was to be put in the tabernacle and it was the place where God would meet with Moses and instruct him, talk to him. It contained, as I said, the Ten Commandments uh, being really the foundation basis of God's covenant with Israel. In the wilderness wandering, when the ark moved, the people moved. It was a, a guide to them. So it's not hard to see how the ark became a symbol of God's divine presence, giving or guiding his people. And it's clear it has that function here. In verse 4 of chapter 3, tells us that the ark is to guide the people which way to go because they haven't been there before. They've been wandering around in the wilderness. This is the first time they've gone up this way. First time now they've travelled to go this way into the promised land. So the ark is going to guide them. But in this context, the ark symbolises much more than that. I think it's more importantly a sign of God's commitment to his promise. Note verse 10. This is how you will know the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hivites, um, Hittites, Perizzites, etc., etc. 
See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. As soon as the priests carry the ark of the Lord, notice the Lord of all the earth set foot in Jordan, its its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand in a heap. You see, the ark is the ark of the covenant. That is, it's a sign of God's pledge, of God's commitment to his people to be their God and they will be his treasured possession. Specifically here in verse 10, it refers to God's promise way back to Abraham to give his descendants all the land of Canaan and to drive out all those peoples that are mentioned there. The whole book of Joshua really, of course, is about God keeping his promise. But here is where it begins. Crossing the Jordan River to actually enter the promised land, God is a God who keeps his promises. The ark is a sign not only of his presence among his people, of his guidance of where they are to go, but of his power to bring about in extraordinary fashion what he promises. Friends, how confident are you of God's promises in the scriptures? How confident are you that when you share the word of God with people, uh, with someone, that it will accomplish God's purpose that goes out, for which it goes out, as God promises in Isaiah? How confident are you um, as a person of Jesus or those who belong to Jesus that his death, as we've just celebrated, covers every sin, past, present, and future. How confident are you that Jesus is always with you? No matter what happens in life, and that one day he'll return and take us into an eternity of bliss with him. Maybe you've lost confidence with God and what he will do or what he says. Maybe life's events have made you uh, a little negative in that way. Then this event here today, friends, this event, this extraordinary wonder is meant to shore up your confidence in God so that you will continue with all your heart to trust and obey him. This is really what chapter 4 brings to us and is all about. But before we get there, we need to note the second thing that dominates this event, and that is the role of Joshua. See, in 3 verse 7, we see this, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. And then if we go to chapter 4 verse 14, this is repeated. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life just as they stood in awe of Moses. In other words, Joshua is God's chosen leader. 
to bring about his promises just as Moses was, his chosen leader, through whom God brought about the great salvation event of the Old Testament, the exodus from Jesus. So if you want to know what God is doing, then look to Joshua. If you want to be on God's side, submit to Joshua. And this tells us something important about the wonders of the Bible. They're not just wonders. They're wonders that have a purpose. They don't occur in every generation. In fact, they only occur a few times in the whole Old Testament. Wonders are not just acts of power. They tell us what God is doing. And particularly through his chosen leaders. First Moses and now Joshua. And that moves us on, you see, to chapter 4, which is devoted to the meaning of the crossing. Once all the nation had uh, gone over the River Jordan, God instructs Joshua to set up a memorial of 12 stones. Chapter 4, verse uh, 1 to 3, When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose 12 men from among you, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests were standing and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. And then in verses 19 and 20, on the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern side of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. Those stones are there for future generations so that the significance and meaning of this great wonder that God had performed might be passed on from generation to generation. So one day, you know, when your son and daughter is walking through Gilgal National Park and they come across the the pile of stones and they ask their parents, what do these stones mean? The parents will tell them first three, three things. First, I'll tell them what God did, that he piled up the water, the actual event. But the next two are the big ones. Second, they will testify that God did this wonder that all the peoples of the earth might know that God is powerful. What other God among all the Canaanite gods could do this? Of course, none. None. And other places in the Bible demonstrate this so well, again and again and again. The other gods are all pretenders. So too in our day. What other religions in our world can raise people from the dead? The leaders like Jairus' daughter that we just heard about here this morning in the children's talk. What other religions can their leaders make a storm calm simply by a word? Feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. None. None can come even close. They're all pretenders. Now the surprising element here though is the reference to all the peoples of the earth. You see? 
This wonder is designed that all the peoples of the earth might know that God is powerful. Now we already know, of course, from Rahab's dialogue in chapter 2 that uh, the word had gone out, at least round about, in the area of what God had done. The spies found that out of God's um, power and the people's hearts around about melted as a result. So they should. But all the peoples of the earth, how is this event going to demonstrate to all the peoples of the earth that God is powerful? Well, I think it can only be as people are told, as it's shared by Israelites and others around of God's breathtaking and dreadful supremacy. Now this doesn't mean at all um, necessarily believe. Notice the Canaanites didn't believe. Rahab did, but the rest of them didn't. But they will know and be without excuse when God's terrible judgment arrives. Surely this is one of the great reasons, friends, to seek to read the Bible with people who do not know Jesus one-to-one, in groups, whatever, or to distribute portions of the Bible in various ways as a number of organisations do. So the people can read, testify, the testimony to these events to reveal how great and powerful God is. They might not believe them, but at least they will know that something absolutely extraordinary is being claimed about the God we serve. And third, the parents will testify also for Israel itself, who are God's people, that this awesome display of God's power might have the effect that Israel may fear God forever. Now, to fear God does not mean to be afraid of him. Um, It can't be, because Israel are his people. There is treasured possession. The New Testament still calls on God's people to fear him. 1 Peter 2.17 we find this um, example instruction. Show show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. To fear God means really first of all to recognise his utter otherness, holiness and power as Lord and creator of the whole earth. A couple of times in this passage, the Lord of all the earth. Well for us it's the Lord of all the universe. So much greater than they knew is what we know. Secondly, it's to trust his word and his promises. This is what the wilderness generation failed to do. They failed to believe God that he would fulfil his promises and suffered accordingly. They saw the human problem, that it was humanly impossible, but failed to trust the great and powerful God for whom nothing was impossible. And thirdly, to fear God is to take his instructions for living seriously and not to presume on God's mercy and love. This, of course, is the sad story in some ways that unfolds throughout the Old Testament with Israel. A presumption that because of either their birth, a born of Abraham, or the presence of such things as the temple in their midst, that they were automatically saved. 
despite corrupt living and the going on of after, uh, going after other gods. Such wonders, you see, as this one, were designed to motivate God's people to pay attention. And so we should today as well. Well, this brings us to the final section, what I've called from the wonder of the crossing to the wonders of Jesus. Of course, the people of God are no longer defined by the people of Israel. We live in an era where God has fulfilled, really, um, his more ultimate promise to Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. That is that through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And I hope you're already beginning to see the parallels that exist between the wonders God did through Joshua and the wonders he has done through Jesus. It really is John's Gospel where I think we see this link in stark for all to see. All the wonders of Jesus recorded in John are designed, are designated by him as signs. That's what he calls them. Let's just take one, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Lazarus is Jesus' friend. He gets sick, he dies. By the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already been dead four days. He is really dead. That's what the four days is meant to do. No question about it now. He is really dead. He's not in some ways like Jairus' daughter, you know, come, he's dead. She's just, oh, well, we're not sure how long. She's still lying on the bed. No, he's in the tomb. It stinks. It smells. He is really rotting away, man. He is dead. And Jesus stands outside the tomb and simply commands, Lazarus, come out. And so he does. Would have been interesting to be there, wouldn't it? Would have liked to have been there. Would have liked to have seen that. And he goes back to living a normal life. Wow. But as I said to you much earlier regarding the function of wonders in the Bible, you see, they tell us what God is doing and through whom he is doing it. So at the end of John, in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, this is what it says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is God doing with the wonders that Jesus performs? Well, they are, first of all, a sign that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. In other words, just like the exaltation of Joshua among the people of Israel, so the wonders that John records show who Jesus is. He is God's chosen leader. He is God's instrument to fulfil his promises and bring salvation to all the nations of the earth. If you want to know what God is doing today, submit to Jesus. If you want to belong to God and be on his side, follow Jesus forever. And then because Jesus is God's man, his wonders are also a sign 
A sign. What happened to that sign? Okay, we must... We're, that's it? Oh, that's good. I must have forgot to put this one in. A sign that we might believe and have life in his name. Just imagine that's what it says. A sign that we might believe and have life in his name. In other words, just as the wonder of the crossing of the Jordan was designed, that Israel might fear God forever... So the wonders of Jesus are designed that his people might believe, might trust him, might obey him and enjoy the fulfilment of God's greater promise. Not the entrance now into the promised land, but eternal life forever with a new heaven and a new earth. Friends, one of the special things I like about the Old Testament is uh, that interaction you've seen between God and his people. These stories as they unfold and how God interacts with his people told in much longer form than we're able to see often uh, in the New Testament. The events of history played out on such a large scale. Joshua, Joshua chapters 3 and 4 is one such example. Here in the story of the crossing of the Jordan by which the whole nation of Israel came across we see a thoroughly awesome a thoroughly awesome view of God as the incredible God of wonders the Lord of all the earth not just the Lord of Israel the Lord of all the earth and as we know it the whole universe we understand that God is utterly reliable If he says it, he will do it. We should come away with a renewed confidence in God's ability to deliver what he has promised. But these chapters today find their ultimate trajectory for us in our time, in our daily lives, in the wonders of Jesus. Wonders that testify to Jesus not just as a human leader, but as God's son and God's great Messiah and saviour through his death on the cross and resurrection to new life, which we've again celebrated this morning. A life we're invited to share if we believe him, if we put our trust in him and if we obey him forever. Is that true for you today? Do you need to ask God to renew your own enthusiasm for our great God of wonders. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great story today. Such a testimony to your wonderful power to accomplish all you say and to keep your promises. We do pray, Lord, that as we read things like this, that our breath will be taken away at how awesome and amazing you are. But we thank you that because we live where we do, we see the ultimate trajectory of this story in the wonders of Jesus incredible things
that he did because he is your son. And the incredible fact that he came to this earth to die for us and then to rise again so that we might be your people forever. Enthuse us, Lord. Give us joy and encourage us to believe him, to trust him and to obey him forever. We ask it in his name. Amen.